Why don't we just pray before I start? Um, Lord, I thank you for uh, this time together, and I pray that you would come and, Lord, speak through your word and speak through me. And, Lord, keep our hearts soft so that we can um, hear and respond. Amen. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it is the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. When Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread of the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who had gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until the morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until the morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered, gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left. Keep it until the morning. So they saved it until morning, and Moses commanded, and it did as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it. On the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. I'm going to stop reading there. I wonder if it's ever occurred to you why, um, why the Israelites are in the wilderness. We've just been hearing in the weeks gone past about how they've been in Egypt, how they have been suffering. 
And yet God has done miracle after miracle to come and to free them from Egypt, from slavery. And these people, the Israelites, their biggest hope, the biggest promise that they hold on to from God is this promise of the promised land, this place where they're going to go and they're going to have their own land where they can rule themselves, where they can provide for themselves. That's the dream. That's what they've been promised. And as they come out of Egypt, that's probably where they're expecting to go. But instead, they end up in the wilderness, in the desert. Why? Look at verse 3 of chapter 16. It's just one scenario of where the Israelites complain to God. The Israelites say, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Again, if you fast forward into chapter 17, they say the same thing again in verse 3, but this time it's about water. They're thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Now, it's very easy to look at this passage that we probably, most of us know fairly well, and to think the Israelites are ridiculous. They should know by now that the Lord is on their side. Why are they still complaining? Well, I don't know have you, if any of you have ever been to the desert. I have never been to the desert, but I've heard it's a pretty hostile place to be. It's not a good place to be. You know if you're in the desert that there's no water. You know that there's no food. And you know you're going to be pretty dire need, particularly for water. So it's not really, I don't think, um, that surprising that the Israelites have started complaining. Okay, so they start harking back to a land where they were slaves. But actually, if you think about it, they're thinking, okay, so I was persecuted in Egypt. It was awful, but I had bread, I had water. In the desert, I don't even have bread and water, and if I don't even have bread and water, I'm going to die anyway. So actually, maybe we were better off in Egypt. It's, it's a fairly logical response for them to give. And yet, really, this complaint this is indicative of what's going on in their heart, of where they are actually at. And the Lord sees it. Tim spoke last week about how the Israelites, they've been freed from slavery. Physically, they are no longer slaves when they come out of Egypt. And yet, internally, these people, these Israelites, are still very much enslaved. They're full of lies. They're full of misunderstanding. And when they start complaining to God in the desert about their lack of food and water, he sees their hearts. And he sees that basically their hearts are not ready for the promised land. They are not a people yet ready to inherit the promised land. And so he allows them to go into the wilderness. He allows them to go into the desert. It's a harsh place to be. It's a hostile place to be. But it's the right climate. It's fertile ground for what God is trying to do in the Israelites, to shape their hearts, to grow them into the people that he's called them to be. And so instead of taking them straight to the promised land, he takes them on a different journey. He takes them on this journey where he uses their physical poverty to give them a spiritual wealth, to make them spiritually rich. And I want to look at three particular things that he does, that he gives to the Israelites. And the first is this. God dismantles the lie. He dismantles the lie that provision is the be-all and end-all. I was told the other day that it, we are nine meals away from looting, violence, 
and general chaos breaking out onto the streets if, from this moment on, there was no more food supply to the UK. So if all our supplies of food stopped coming to the supermarkets, to the shops, if all the farms stopped producing, we are literally three days away from running out of food. So on the first day, we realized there's a problem. We all rushed to the shops. We emptied the supermarket shelves. On the second day, we start eating through our reserves. On the third day, our reserves begin to run out. On the fourth day, we're out on the streets. And society doesn't look like it does today. Chaos ensues. It's a weird thought. I don't know how accurate it is. But what it shows is that reminder that right at the heart of human nature is this in instinct to survive. It's built right into our DNA. What's the first thing that a baby does when a baby is born? It breathes and then it screams. That's how it knows how to survive. So you put the Israelites into the wilderness. They see the lack of water. They see the lack of food. What do they do? They scream. They want to survive. The problem occurs in what they do in their response to this lack of water, to this lack of food. Because what they do is they make provision the be-all and end-all. They say, forget God. Scrap the promised land. Scrap wherever he's trying to take us, whatever he's trying to do in us. We need food. We need water. I know where we can get that. We can get that from Egypt. And suddenly what they do is they stop being the people of God. They stop being a people who see God as their God, as their provider, and they start seeing provision as the be-all and end-all. They make provision the goal. We will not survive unless we can provide. And what they do is they put provision up here. They put provision on the throne. They make provision king. And by default, God is displaced. He comes down here because he will not compete. They make the wrong choice. They, they make the balance go in the wrong direction. They've decided that provision will make them safe. Provision will make them secure. Does this ring any bells? Does this sound familiar? Look at how we live our lives. We live our lives in the fast lane. And if you look deep, actually, what most of the things we worry about, what most of the things that we do, most of our priorities are based around provision. And I'm not really talking about money, although money is a huge part of it, but it's so much more than that. Look at what our lives are based around. What, what job am I going to get? How am I going to earn money? How am I going to get on the housing ladder? How am I going to provide for my future? What if I get married? What if I have children? How am I going to provide for them? The world tells us to build this safety net Life insurance, building insurance, think about your pensions, think about your mortgages, think about your rent, think about Christmas. And what the world is saying is you need to build this huge security net around yourself, this castle around yourself, so that you know you're safe. You're not safe until you've crossed all your T's, you've dotted all of your I's. That's what the world tells us we need to be doing. It's no longer about just putting food on the table and a roof over our heads. It's about having our whole future sewn up knowing that we're safe, and then we can relax, except we never can relax because the world then throws something else at us. The world's running at this fast pace, and most of us end up joining the race, joining the pace of the world, because it's what we see around us. But actually, and part of it is it's a reality. We have to be responsible. The Lord has given us gifts. He's given us talents. He's given us ways of providing for ourselves. That's not wrong. But what is wrong is when we think that that is the be-all and end-all. 
And it's a symptom of self-reliance. It's a symptom of pride, of wanting to be in control. It's a symptom of worry, of fear. And what it suggests is this huge God deficit, a deficiency in trusting God, in knowing him, who he is, and that he is our provider. We put provision up here, and our relationship with God, by default, comes down here. Um, For me, I feel like this kind of um, provision being the be-all and end-all has changed how it looks as my life has gone on. When I came out of university, I felt a huge burden to not provide for myself financially, although I obviously knew that I needed to do that, but it was more this burden of trying to work out what it was, what was going to be my thing that then enabled me to provide for myself. What life was I going to build for myself? Everything's so uncertain when you come out of university. You don't know if you're going to get married. You don't know what job you're going to do. You don't know where you're going to live. There are so many uncertainties. And for me, going through my 20s, going through my 30s, where everything's changing, you're moving house, people are getting married, some people aren't getting married, people are changing jobs, people are loving their jobs, they've landed on their feet, other people are still, someone I remember saying, it's like you're flip-flopping around in indecision. I was like, that's me, I don't know what I'm doing. But it was this burden of how am I going to provide, how am I going to shape my life, build my net. Now it's changed. I've got a home, I've got a family, those worries sort of feel like they've settled. But then, of course, it just jumps to my children. So for me now, my my concern is not for myself. I'm not worried. I don't really want the next house. I don't really want the big car. That's That's not what makes me get out of bed in the morning. What makes me get out of bed in the morning and what keeps me up at night is worrying about my children. How am I going to provide for my children? Not necessarily materially, but how am I going to make sure they have the best start in life? How am I going to give them that springboard that enables them to go out and make the best of all the opportunities that the world offers. My son comes home the whole time from school, and he often is hanging out with families who have older kids, so he sees them doing things that are way beyond his age. But he comes home saying, so-and-so's had a sleepover, so-and-so is learning how to play rugby. He's not doing any of these things. But I build this burden because the world's telling me, you're not doing these things for your children. You need to be ticking all of these boxes. You need to be providing. And then you read this passage and you realize that's not the Lord's way of provision. That is not how he wants to provide for us. The Lord takes the Israelites into the wilderness to strip them bare, to say, I'm going to take everything else away I'm gonna, so that I can dismantle this lie that provision is the be-all and end-all, that if you've got it all sewn up, you're fine. I'm going to dismantle that lie and I'm going to put myself back where I belong. So how do we do this? Well, that takes us to the second lesson that God is teaching the Israelites. How do we dismantle the lie? Well, what God says is he shifts the focus. I am the be-all and end-all. God is the be-all and end-all. He is the beginning and the end. If you've read this passage before, if you've heard it spoken on before, you've probably had this inkling that this passage isn't really just about physical provision but it's also about spiritual provision. The real lesson that God is wanting the Israelites to learn is that he is enough, is that he is their provision, that he is what they need. There are countless verses in this passage that talk about um, the reason why God has allowed the Israelites to be spiritually poor, to be physically poor, and why he's providing for them in this way. And I'm just going to read some of them out. 
So in verses 6 and 7, it says, this is so small. It says, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. There's this kind of hint going on through this passage of, I can provide for you physically, that's actually pretty easy. But what I'm hoping is that this physical provision is going to point you to me, that through it you're going to see me. If we fast forward on to verse 9, it says, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Come to the Lord, this invitation. Verse 10, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. God is reaching out to them. He's saying, do you see me now? Do you see that I am your God, that I can provide for you? There's more. Verse 12 is another one where it says, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will see, you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. God wants the Israelites to realize that he is their God, that he is the very essence of life, that without him there is no life. He makes sense of everything. Without him, nothing makes sense. He's trying to teach the Israelites not just to come to him for their needs, but to come to him as their need. They were created for a relationship with God. That is where they're going to find their sustenance, all that they need. And so God is stripping them. He dries up all their other wells so that they will see him. We are physical beings and we operate as physical beings. So much so that I think we often forget that we are spiritual beings with spiritual needs. The Israelites are so focused on their physical poverty, the fact that they are physically about to starve, the fact that they are physically dehydrated, that they don't even see their spiritual poverty. That's what the Lord sees. The Lord says, your physical needs, I can meet them easily. It's your spiritual needs that you need to pay attention to. You are spiritually starving. You are spiritually dehydrated. And so he does this thing where he uses their phys the physical provision that he's giving them, and he sows it into spiritual provision. He allows them to see that this physical provision that's coming from him is also pointing to him. And slowly, as, they we as he weaves these things together, He's trying to provide not just for the physical, but for the spiritual. The irony is that it's often in the wilderness that we meet God, that we find life, that we grow, because it's in the wilderness that God gets our attention. We spend our whole life trying to dodge the wilderness, trying to dodge hardship, to dodge the desert, whether that's physically or emotionally. And yet, often that's where we find God. The good times are pointless if God is not our Lord when we're in the good times. But the wilderness, when the Lord is our God, is full of life. This passage isn't really about the good times. This passage isn't really about the wilderness. What this passage is about is seeing God for who he is, is realizing that in God we have all that we need, that there is nothing else, nothing else matters. And when you get a glimpse of this, you see that potentially there is this other way of living. And it takes guts to pursue it. 
because it's so different from the way the world lives. But when you get this glimpse that he is meeting my needs deep, deep down, you don't want to turn back. Uh, when I was at university, I had some great friends, and we used to go on road trips quite a lot from uni, and one, of the t one time we went to go and meet um, and stay with the family of these friends. And um, this friend of mine, he said, well, pack warm clothes because um, it's pretty cold. I was like, I live in Yorkshire, and we're going to Norfolk. It's not going to be that different. Anyway, we got to the house, knocked on the door, and the dad opens the door, and the dad is fully clothed in hat, scarf, coat, gloves. And I thought, oh, he must be on his way out. But it turns out that's how he dresses for inside his house. And uh, it was freezing, absolutely freezing. We went to bed that night, and we had two duvets on. And when we woke up in the morning, you literally see your breath coming from lying in your bed. This, this guy and his wife are the most amazing couple. And um, we actually go and stay with them still quite regularly. And we always meet with the Lord when we go and stay with them. Their house is just full of his presence. And then um, the dad has an amazing story. And he, he wasn't a Christian. He was an incredibly successful banker. He really lived life to the full in London. And then when he was 40, he became a Christian. And he's pretty eccentric and pretty radical. And then, so as a result, everything changed. He felt God saying to leave his job, to leave London. So he moved to this house in Norfolk that we still visit. And he rents the house. And um, basically, he let God strip him of everything. Um, he then got married and he had a family and has spent most of his life being an evangelist. And as a result, they've had very little money. And they can tell you countless stories of how God has provided the money they've needed just when they've needed it. But there has never been any extra. There's still no extra. So when we stay there, it's still freezing. And you run from the study where they have a fire to the kitchen where they have this kind of old gas burner thing. And literally the rest of the house is like being outside. And in the evenings um, at supper, he will say to us, does anyone want to have a bath tonight? And uh, we'll be like, yes. And it's basically he's working out whether he needs to put the hot water on. That's the kind of level of living. And yet, God is there. And yet, because they've allowed themselves to live this different life, God has come close. And I was sitting down one evening, and the wife turned to me, and she's the real saint in, in, in all of this. And um, she just looked at me, and she said, the thing is, is that sometimes God will allow you to stay poor in an area of your life in order for you to be close to him, in order to keep him close. And she didn't say it with any bitterness. She didn't say it as though she was blaming God. She said it with real joy because she had seen, through their poverty, she'd seen God. And she has this incredible relationship with God. And it's a relationship she wouldn't trade for anything. She'd seen what God is trying to teach the Israelites that God is the be-all and end-all, that God is the beginning and the end. So how, how do we live this out? How do we learn to see God as the be-all and end-all? How do we learn to dismantle this lie? Well, what God does then, a third thing with the Israelites in this passage, he sets a new pace. He invites the Israelites to come and learn the unforced rhythms of his grace. I wonder if you've ever wondered why God provided in the way that he did. So we've seen all of these miracles. There's miracles in Egypt. He's got them out of slavery. He could have just said, okay, so I know how long you're going to be in the wilderness, 40 years. So I can probably work out how much food you need 
for the whole of that time. How much water you need for the whole of that time. And I'm just going to provide it to you, give it all to you in one big go. Eat as you like. I guarantee it won't go off. I guarantee there will be enough for the whole 40 years. See you later. But he doesn't. Instead, he constructs this way of giving where he's giving to them on a daily basis. He says, I'm going to give you food, just enough food for one day. And then the next day, there will be fresh food. So don't bother saving any food for tomorrow because it will go off. Until the sixth day, when he says, I'm going to provide you with a day on the seventh day of rest. So gather double on the sixth and save it. It won't go off this time and you will have enough for the seventh. God develops this rhythm of life for the Israelites, where, again, the physical provision and the spiritual provision are sewn in together because they have to trust God that as they eat all their food for that day and they finish it, that the next day there will be more food, even in the desert. So they learn this daily rhythm of trusting God and seeing his provision. What the Israelites have to learn to do is they have to learn to go at God's pace of provision, the pace of a child, seeing their father provide them on a, de- on a daily basis, not worrying about tomorrow. And here is the key point, that God's version of provision runs at a different pace to a different beat to the way that the world teaches us we need to provide for ourselves. Um, there's a verse in Matthew, which I've kind of hinted at. Um, and in the message version, it says this, Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. God is inviting us, he's inviting the Israelites into this different way, this different pace, this different rhythm of living. Um, I used to work in the Brompton Hospital um, as a part-time chaplain. And the Brompton Hospital, it's a heart specialist hospital. And so I saw a lot of people coming in um, who were coming in to be fitted with pacemakers. And I didn't get into the medical side that much, but what I did learn was that a pacemaker is, it regulates the heartbeat. So someone might have a, a, a beat that's too slow or a heartbeat that's too fast or it's irregular. And the pacemaker regulates it and sets it to the right pace, the right beat for their body. And that's what God is wanting to do for the Israelites. That's what I think he's wanting to do for us today, to give us this new rhythm of living, this new rhythm where we learn to see him as our provision, both physically and spiritually. What God does practically is he says, have a Sabbath, have a day of rest. You are not machines, you need to rest. But more than just physically resting, he says, rest in me. The Sabbath is to spend time with me. I don't know about your life, but most of the lives of the people that I see around me are running at a fast, fast pace. My sister, she works in the city, and um, I mean, she works crazy hours. And she works hard, she plays hard, and she she said to me, sometimes plane journeys are my favorite time because, because they don't have any internet. No one can reach me. Work can't bother me. I can't be in touch with anyone. And I get given, it's like I just get given this gift of six hours to just be. I feel like quite a lot of people would probably say that about their lives. We work hard and then we fill every other second of our lives with some form of stimulation, whether it's people, whether it's screens. We're busy, busy, busy every millisecond of our lives. Even if you think you're resting, 
and you probably are watching Netflix, we're probably not sitting in the Lord's presence. And actually what the Lord says is deep, deep rest comes from being with me, comes from sitting with me. And I found, um, I'm a full-time mum, which is the weirdest of jobs because you're on all the time, but in some ways you're kind of off all the time because you can kind of decide what you do with your day. And every day feels so busy because you don't really have your hands to yourself, you've always got loads of jobs to do, and you, I always have three people talking at high speed. And um, there feels like there's no space. And yet, weirdly, sometimes there are these kind of weird lags where you'll have 10 minutes where the children are suddenly all happily playing, and I slump into a chair. But what I used to do was I'd slump into a chair and I'd get my phone out. Now, everyone does this, don't we? we? You sit on the bus, you sit on the tube, you go to work, get your phone out. Some of you are probably amazing and you're reading a verse from the Bible. I was never reading a verse from the Bible. I was on Instagram or I was replying to WhatsApp messages or I was watching, I can only ever read the headlines of BBC News because I never managed to finish a full article before a child interrupts me. I wasn't doing anything productive. And I listened to this talk about slowing down and making room for God in our lives. And I thought, you know what, I don't do that. And so I left Instagram, I deleted various apps from my phone, and I thought, I'm going to create this, I want this rhythm. I'm going to try and have mini Sabbaths in my day, because you never get a Sabbath as a mum, apart from when you come here. But um, the mini Sabbath, where for those 10 minutes, actually I'm going to choose to engage with God. I'm going to put on a worship song, or I'm just going to be, and I'm going to be with God. That's the kind of rhythm that we need in our lives if we ever want to be able to see him as our provider. If we ever want to see that actually we can trust him with the biggest of physical provisions and as our spiritual provider. Um, and to finish, I think this is a very personal journey. We can read the story of the Israelites and think that's great, but it doesn't necessarily impact us. I can tell you my story about how I'm learning to see God as my provider, how I'm learning to slow down. But the reality is it's a personal journey that we have to go on with God. If you look at this passage, God doesn't put the manna into the Israelites' stomachs. They have to go and get it. They are told how to go and get it. But the reality is if we want to live different, if we want to learn to see God as our provider, he's not going to zap us. We have to go and find it. We have to ask him Show me in my life where you're missing. Show me in my life where I need to slow down. Show me in my life where maybe I need to let you take some things away, dry up some wells potentially. And I want to just finish with these words because I think these words are how God would have all of our hearts be and how I think he wanted the Israelites' hearts to be. That we would say this, let this heart see nothing but your glory. Let this heart not wander from your mercy. May I always linger in your presence, my Lord. I will ever praise you. You are ever worthy, my Lord. So I'm just going to say a prayer, and then I'm going to hand over to Tim. Father, I thank you that you are the Lord that provides. Lord, I thank you that you provide what we need. You know us. You love us. You made us. And Lord, I pray that wherever each one of us is at tonight, that we might come and see you as our provider. I pray that you'd come and take away the lies of the world. Lord, I pray that you'd come and help us have courage to perhaps, to perhaps relinquish control 
Just say, let me see how you do it, Lord. Show me how you do it, Lord. Lord, I pray more than anything that the joy that is intended to come from being with you, from being your children, that we would see that tonight. That you would soften our hearts and let us receive from you, Father. Amen.